point, as always in Brecht, is not so much the decision itself, but how people can learn to arrive at it. What tests, what values should they apply? His purpose in all his plays was to dramatize a, a difficult situation and then show the very different ways in which it could be looked at and understood. He was more interested, he often said, in people arguing about it, thinking for themselves after they'd seen the performance than in any particular conclusion which the play or its characters themselves arrived at. Yet, of course, he was putting in his own ideas about how decisions of this kind, uh, d difficult decisions, should be made. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Radical Thoughts podcast. We are excited to return after our hiatus and to start delving into the second set of books in the Radical Thinker series created by Furzo Books. For this month's episode, we read Politics of Modernism Against the New Conformists by the Welsh cultural theorist Raymond Williams. If you are a longtime listener of the podcast, you will probably know that our very first episode was on Williams' book, Cultural Materialism. However, you don't have to be familiar with that book to continue listening to this episode. We are very honored and excited to announce that this episode is being created with the support of the Raymond Williams Foundation as part of an explainer series, alongside many other contributors, and an effort to create accessible public materials in a wide variety of formats that can help introduce the work of Raymond Williams to a contemporary audience. These explainers are part of celebrating the centenary of Williams' birthday. We here at the Radical Thoughts podcast hope that this episode will inspire you to continue learning about Raymond Williams and the foundation that exists under his name. Links to the RWF website and other explainers produced for the centenary can be found in the episode description. You just heard a clip of Raymond Williams discussing The Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bertolt Brecht, which was broadcast in 1985 as part of the English program series. Right now, you're listening to 22 Ghosts 3 by Nine Inch Nails, but in a second, you'll hear the Radical Thoughts podcast team discuss modernism, the avant-garde, the relationship between culture and politics, and much more. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. So, we're officially starting the second set of the Radical Thinkers series by Verso Books, and it seems like a good idea to maybe introduce ourselves in this project a little bit before we dive in again, just in case we have some new listeners. Um, and also, I mentioned this in the recorded intro, but uh, thank you to the Raymond Williams Foundation, who we are uh, working with in making this episode and with a whole bunch of other people that are producing stuff on Raymond Williams for the centenary of his birthday. So thank you to them and people should check them out. Uh, so if you haven't listened to this podcast before, we basically are trying to get through this long and eclectic series of books published by Verso uh, called the Radical Thinker series. It's been around for quite a while, uh, and they usually release a new set of books every year with a variety of thinkers and topics that have had some sort of important impact on uh, what might be called critical theory or like critical philosophy and attempting to describe the world, think through problems going on today, um, 
and they're they're very wide ranging. Our last season, we got through the first set from the very first collection. That's that's the idea of the project. We're going to try, I think, and limit our references to things we've already read before because we want to keep this accessible and focused on on Williams. And uh, I am P.H. Higgins. Occasionally, I write things on the Internet, and I'm currently appearing on the Zero Books video YouTube channel, filling in for C. Derek Varn on there. So if you watch Zero Books, you can catch me on there occasionally. Um, hey, I'm Donald Parkinson. Uh internet marxist and disgruntled office worker i'm a uh, managing editor at a cosmonaut magazine and uh, i'm andrew woods i'm a phd candidate over at the center for the study of theory and criticism at university of western ontario and um i have carpal tunnel in both of my hands because i'm currently writing my dissertation (laughs) um so it, 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 it it's Nice that I can speak rather than uh, r- write today and give you know my poor internal tunnels a rest. This book that we read is The Politics of Modernism Against the New Conformists by the Welsh theori- cultural theorist, in fact, kind of sometimes considered the founder of cultural studies, Raymond Williams. And it's uh, it's a posthumous work. It was originally published in 1989 from a collection of, uh, it has a couple lectures and some drafted chapters that he was working on uh, at the time of his death. And it covers a wide range of topics, mainly focusing on the idea of trying to figure out what constitutes modernism and what constitutes the kind of artistic, cultural, and political imagination of the present and whether it's appropriate to think of it in terms of modernisms or the avant-garde as previously constituted. Would you say that's fair or am I missing anything? I think kind of what Williams is trying to do here is looking at how modernism had this kind of oppositional push and how this oppositional push translates into essentially just a new kind of marketing language and trying to imagine how this kind of radical edge that modernism had could maybe be revived without simply just looking back to modernism. And I also think that this book is a very fine expression of what Williams saw as the scope and purpose of cultural studies in understanding these um, historical and artistic changes. I just wanted to point to uh, a fairly large quotation in from one of the essays where he writes that I want to begin with a quite central theoretical point, which to me is at the heart of cultural studies, but which has not always been remembered in it. And this is, to use contemporary terms instead of the rather more informal terms in which it was originally defined, that you can't understand an intellectual or artistic project without also understanding its formation. That the relation between a project and a formation is always decisive and that the emphasis of cultural studies is precisely that it engages with both rather than specializing itself to one or the other, 
and what he's doing what he's doing in the essays on modernism in this collection is trying to contextualize the projects of different modernist authors and artists within a larger social formation and how they were formed by it and also how they were reacting to it um right it's it's trying to understand modernism not just as an artistic style or an ideology or a worldview but as a uh, what, he, what he calls it a, a cultural formation it's not simply just an idea or a style but it's a whole historical conjuncture i guess that is grounded in specific historical conditions and for him one of the key conditions is the, the rise of the metropolis he, he doesn't lay out that modernism is you know when you do x thing or that it's just a period from you know like oh it's from 1914 to 1950 or something like that one of the main focuses of this book is how modernism and the avant-garde movements that are part of modernism relate to political visions he he doesn't say modernism is people who likes technology modernism is the people that wanted xyz he really does start from saying there's a, a set of conditions, a set of historical conjunctures that produce this kind of cultural opportunity. And the, the metropolis is the major focal point for his, his where he kind of starts for a, a couple of reasons. One is that, well, for one thing, when he uses the term metropolis, it's not just city in general. He's using this as like it, it is a very distinct a meeting ground where there is international, where they are hubs of international right. connection. It's like the nodes of like world commerce. Right. It's not like a medieval city that's just like there's some art people that live in artisanal like settings or something. People are no longer living in a predominantly agricultural style. There are lots of people that have to move around to find work. So you have many international communities and migrant communities that are moving and going into new spaces and developing national identities in the context of these large urban centers. And at the same time, these are centers where there's international trade is expanding on an industrial level. You have the bourgeoisie as this new class that originally is kind of more of a minority class. It's people that uh, are shop owners, people who have maybe ownership of land, people who have or uh, who are high-end artisans, but now it's it's moving to become its own powerful class that is in in opposition to aristocrats who are the old leaders, but it's also dominating this new uprooted working class that's occurring. And then because of all this happening, you also have this new kind of popular culture that's directed towards this heterogeneous public there's this public space this public sphere that is a very wide-ranging mass that cannot just be uh reduced to one kind of you know natural localized community it's it, it's made up of all these different intersecting points because of the city you know you have public performances you have theater you have the emergence of film and radio you can have big uh, demonstrations so th so those are all kind of the conditional transformations that come to define the new kind of 
imaginations of modernism and the and the little groups that consider themselves or or can be considered modernist and he seems to regard um certain formal experimentations with uh language in um avant-garde um art and poetry as not merely a uh a, a change in form or the uh sudden inspiration of like individual artists but is actually something that's rooted in the experience of the metro- metropolis and specifically the experience of the um of, of the migrant of the exile who has come to these uh major metropolitan hubs and uh started to um interact with language in a uh, new way it's uh, an interaction with language that seems uprooted from common tradition from the community and the forms of communicability that are wrapped up in those and they start to view language uh, with a sense of arbitrariness or miscommunication and play that leads to the more experimental poetry of Dada or surrealism. So this is an instance of uh, how he sees the larger social or cultural formation of the metropolis informing the practice of modernist poets and artists. Right. It's basically what you have is, you know, this formation of this global uprooted class, you know, for the most part, proletarians who are no longer connected to a specific folk community with a specific linguistic traditions. And so once you have essentially, you have all these rootless cosmopolitans, as some would call them, that are uprooted from these you know, various traditional ways of speaking, it creates an opportunity for these, these forms of, of speech to be disconnected and then recombined with entirely alien new forms of speech, which allows for this intense linguistic experimentation and abstraction. There's a, there's a move of using the of language itself as a tool of abstraction rather than just a descriptive tool which creates new aesthetic realities really one of the the threads that is going through this work when he's dealing with these uh the avant-garde groups that you know today you would find in a you know like a museum or something so the dadaists the surrealists, the futurists, who at this time are creating what is seen as this explosive, very different artwork that seems completely severed from artistic traditions in the past. He he knows that a lot of these figures come actually from a rather aristocratic middle class or bourgeois lifestyle or background, and he he develops. A, a term where he talks about the politically dissident bourgeoisie. So these groups tend to be dis- dissident bourgeoisie figures who see that there's something different going on in terms of the traditional artworks, traditional communications and and privileges. And he describes how there isn't just a left-wing modernism or a right-wing modernism. There's uh, a weird hodgepodge in terms of where people go with this. 
And it's partially because on the one hand, you have people who are nostalgic for this kind of aristocratic ideal. Everyone will be in their right place. Everyone will fulfill their role in society. The aristocratic individual is the only one who has any access to a real kind of vision or freedom because of their aristocratic power and inherent nobility. But then you also have figures who are becoming more attracted to the growing concerns of the worker movement, the idea of a progress that moves beyond the limitations of the of the powers that the bourgeois class have opened up, but as only only as as things that can produce wealth in terms of, you know, business profits and stuff, rather than seeing it as something that leads to uh, a collective liberation and and more social and artistic expression of society or something like that, which you see in, in the Surrealists. And he talks about how there's a, a growth from alternative to oppositional, which this is something that is pretty foundational to William's thought in general, where the alternative groups are those that think of themselves in terms of, oh, I found a tradition, I found a way of life that I enjoy, that I think is more powerful, more meaningful than the greater, more totalizing, popular way of life that's being established. And I want my alternative way of life to be separate. I want to leave behind the mass cultural attitudes and be left with my alternative. And the oppositional position is someone who says, I have found the seeds of a new way of life. I've found new traditions. I am establishing new meanings. And I want this to come into conflict with the broader mass way of life that is established right now with the hope that it will overcome the limitations of this mass way of life and change them um, for the whole of society. I think, I don't know, maybe something like like punk rock vulture would be more alternative today because it's more so about carving out like an alternative niche within society. But it's it's really hard to think of what a, an oppositional avant-garde would be today or what an example of one would be. Right. Of course, a footnote here is that in reality, most of these groups remain minorities, both in terms of their contributors and in terms of their audiences, right? Um, but someone like the Surrealists explicitly fl- frame their project as, oh, we're seeing these revolutionary political currents that want to change economic conditions, uh, that want to change political structures, and our contribution is going to attempt to overturn the entire way that we socially live. We're breaking through all the, the old traditions. We're, we're finding this kind of new imaginary and this new set of social relationships. And he, he does link this oppositional avant-garde to the existence of a, a revolutionary workers' movement that is kind of a, a new society forming within the old that, that these dissident bourgeois intellectuals can link up with to kind of, you know, to transform the culture the way they want. And, you know, the example he brings is, you know, the Stockholm Workers' Commune who celebrate the 63rd birthday of August Strindberg. And so he kind of sees this historical moment where a, a radical workers' movement and a dissident 
bourgeois avant-garde kind of can possibly link and actually create like a truly oppositional cultural form. Though the the other side to it is, of course, that he 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 is always ready to note there is always the possibility of an my French is terrible, but like an arrear guard. Uh, which, you know, avant-garde being, you know, vanguard being someone leading forward and their rear guard is the guard from the back. Um, and that's his term for, you know, that in many ways, the fascist modernists were were also a dissident movement that connected with uh, real masses and were committed to a violent break with existing bourgeois world. And, and, and that this uh, anti-bourgeois revolt would hybridize kind of feudal conventions, aristocratic concepts with uh, worship of high high tech machinery, uh, a syndicalist kind of uh, corporatist view of well, if we're not going to have the kingdom based society of uh, king, noblemen, peasants, but we can have this kind of everyone works for the collected society. The workers will be will be integrated with the capitalists who will be all integrated through state power. It will overcome the contradictions and divisions between people and their, their interests. And we will become a grand, you know, nationalist uh, society that has a pure expression of, of its internal spirit or something like that. Yeah. It's like they're a dissident bourgeoisie that sees the bourgeoisie as, as decadent and, need of and, and holding back and all the heroic values of the past and so there needs to be this kind of um destruction of the old but not in order to advance you know the project of, of any kind of egalitarian internationalist you know socialist order but to kind of create almost like an archaeo futurism what i really uh, enjoy about william's perspective on modernism is that he so often questions what other people have taken for granted. I mean, you you, you open uh, textbooks or introductions to modernism, and you'll often find uh, references to the the anti bourgeois uh, nature of modernism, or you know they they, they were going against the uh, norms of middle class life, and. William stops and goes, well, what what on earth does that actually mean? And how does this uh, play out uh, historically in, in, in how the cultural formation of modernism was formed? And he offers a theory for how this dissident bourgeoisie emerged from the development of the bourgeoisie itself. Um he talks about how in the early stages of the the rise of the bourgeoisie, uh, they participated in independent, productive and trading enterprise that uh, tried to be free from the constraints of state regulation and the residues of feudal privilege. And this encouraged an uh, idea and a mindset of the bourgeoisie of the, the sovereign individual, of the one who makes rules for themselves, the one who is self-governing. Uh, um, and with the ascendancy of the bourgeoisie, um, it led to the rise of a new morality of order and property that was epitomized in the figure of the bourgeois family, which was a hybrid of feudal conventions on one side. You've got a 
marry people in your class and you've got to marry people who your parents approve of. And it was blended with a kind of bourgeois emphasis on personal feeling as the basis of marriage. So the sovereign individual loving another sovereign individual, and that would form the uh, basis of the marital contract. And the kind of contradictory nature of this hybrid between convention and desire gave rise to, in the next generation, a critique of bourgeois family as hypocritical, repressive, and stultifying, and a search for alternative or oppositional ways of life. And the sons of daughters of these you know, bourgeois married parents could uh, take the wealth that had been accumulated through, through industry, through, uh, th- through trading, uh, to pursue new forms of personal intellectual liberation, and he and and Williams puts it that uh, uh, these well um, these modernists used the uh, profits of the uh, economic bourgeoisie to lead political and artistic crusades uh, against it, and this is his theory for how the dissident bourgeoisie that would go to form the modernist avant-garde movements arised out of the development of uh, capitalism in modernity itself. And he also uses that to point towards how elements of modernism have been taken up uh, in new social structures or political regimes in the later 20th century as well. We should contextualize that a lot of what we've described so far, Williams is placing mostly up through the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the standard narrative for where most of this kind of modernist experimentation is, is at its high point. And this kind of concept of sovereign individualism, the individual who can escape all these restraints that can overcome these kind of cultural limits and things after world war ii williams is noting that uh there there starts to develop a broader kind of globalized ideology where the idea that social cultural national bonds kind of melt away gets taken up away from this kind of radical oppositionalism and is replanted in the idea of this global free market this idea that there are these kind of homo economicus individuals who who can make their own decisions, who can learn to express themselves in a purely individualistic way, that they don't need to be tied down to any sort of localized convention. And the concepts of oppositional art, of breaking with traditions of new creative expression, start to become tied into commercial enterprise into marketing, into this idea of expressing yourself through your consumptive habits, into being new for the sake of newness. What was oppositional in the avant-garde where they said, hey, art has this amazing power of breaking through boundaries. It's it, We're in a situation where language no longer is just about tradition and clear communication. It's about crossing the wires. It's about uh, saying things that no one thought you could say to them, they were saying art has this kind of autonomous power. It it can overcome these kind of social conditions, and the capitalist market 
over time as it intensifies itself becomes the kind of breaking down of these social traditions and it itself becomes an incentive to celebrate newness for newness sake without trying to actually deal with the social conditions that it comes from the integration of this kind of modernist attitude with this the new kind of post-war international market highlights one of his quotes which is where he says that this politics could go either way the new art could find its place either in a new social order or in a culturally transformed but otherwise persistent and recuperated old order Williams was making this argument about the absorption of elements of modernism into essentially neoliberalism around 1987, 1988. And it seems clear that he's alluding to Thatcher's political program of modernization. Uh, so, so when Thatcher, the leader of the Conservative Party back then, came to office in 1979, she carried out a plan to modernize the post-war Keynesian welfare state. And what this meant in practice is encapsulated quite nicely in uh, the British Marxist Ralph Miliband's phrase of class war conservatism. So it slashed the social safety net to tatters, it cut the budgets for schools, hospitals, and other social services and other uh, wings of the uh, welfare state while continuing to support and celebrate a strong military and other institutions like the courts that promoted the kind of jingoistic style of British nationalism. And this is... um, and this critique of Thatcherism is a theme that, he, that Williams picks up in his essay on the Arts Council in this uh, collection. So for uh, listeners who are not in the UK, the Arts Council was founded in 1946 to provide public funding for artistic and uh, cultural projects around uh, the UK. Um Williams, uh, in his essay, notes that uh, right-wing politicians uh, would often critique the Arts Council in the 70s and the 80s for squandering money on what they saw as subversive, obscene, or trivial art. And around sometime in the 1980s, William uh, Rees-Moggs became the chairman of the Arts Council. He started to cut the number of organizations that received Arts Council funding and introduced initiatives to encourage corporate sponsorship of the arts and public-private partnerships for certain cultural institutions. So you can see how you know uh, art is being reintroduced into a kind of market logic, kind of opposite to what the original modernist avant-garde intended, but is that is it demonstration of how they're sort of perverted uh, later on in the uh, well not perverted but it's 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 how this tendency plays out uh, uh, later on um, and for Williams he makes the case in the essay that the arts council is 
more than just a kind of uh, uh, supply of pocket money or an allowance for artists. The purpose of the Arts Council is to encourage a serious, popular, expanding and changing culture that isn't just limited to central London or different types of high arts like ballet and opera that grant prestige to private investors. He writes that if we take the idea of making art as practice as and as works more accessible to more people, we have to accept and indeed welcome the fact that as part of these changes, there will be also there will also be changes in the arts themselves. So he, he had Williams seemed to have this much more expansive notion of culture as something that could be integrated into popular and everyday life. And with that, uh, I guess, uh, introduction, forms of art will change, forms of culture will change, but will reflect a kind of uh, popular life. And this is something that he also picks up in the essay on uh, cultural studies, which uh, starts the kind of second section of what we have here. Yeah, the whole Arts Council thing is really interesting because uh, I just I've read a little bit about some of the moral panics in the UK about like the kind of stuff the Arts Council was funding. Like there was this one exhibit called Prostitution where they basically like had like used tampons on display and like all this kind of ultra transgressive imagery. And there was just this huge kind of uproar over it and. And it's it's interesting because, like, you know, modern popular culture, neoliberalism is kind of associated with, like, breaking down all these moral boundaries and, you know, infinite sex or whatever. But, like, the reality is, is an actual neoliberal offensive was an attack on that kind of transgressive stuff initially. A, a cultural system that has a a very particular way of reacting to things it finds dangerous and subversive and then simultaneously finding ways to kind of wall it off within its own cultural condition. With with this book, I think that one of the things that can be kind of puzzling is it's hard to tell if Williams is saying that modernism is good, if it's good to be kind of modernist in your attitudes. Is modernism something that was good that can, became bad? It can be a little bit odd uh, for the reader to try and kind of understand what his what his takeaway is when he starts moving into these more contemporary pieces, um, but it, I think it is interesting that when he turns to talking about the project that he started with cultural studies itself, he sets out kind of a, a little short reflective history or genealogy of cultural studies, and he he talks about a, a cycle. He describes a kind of cycle of you start out having a set of transformative goals that you want to achieve for society more broadly to attempt and achieve these transformative goals. So you start working inside institutions like universities, you know, saying we're going to break down canons, we're going to introduce new perspectives, we're going to bring in new content and introduce uh, these younger generations and stuff to, to new ideas. 
Um, but by doing so, you have to reproduce your project as a professor, as, as someone in an institution. You have to develop a syllabus. You have to find other intellectuals who uh, can work with the institutional support and, and support what you're doing. And so you end up reproducing yourself through the institutions you entered to change. Um, and then sometimes you might have people from the original project will leave because they're dissatisfied with this and they try to kind of reignite their original goals, but they do so in a way that is more localized and it, it is kind of forced to seek out a, a exclusive set of the public that are already perhaps interested in or will be more inclined to listen to your project instead of trying to appeal to the broad public wholesale through institutional connection. The, the promise of these smaller groups is that they, they actually do try to produce long-lasting social ties that are grounded in the conditions that these people are living in. Um, and the difficulty is seeing if you can reproduce those ties and those, those smaller localized institutions in a way that is still capable of reaching a broader public and reaching the broader social, uh, social base of mass society and changing the whole of it in that kind of oppositional framework and not just getting caught in being, you know, a, a, a small group of people who just have their alternative lifestyle. It, Williams is uh, is an interesting person to be speaking on this in part because he has spent quite a bit of his life talking about mass culture and especially the development of new technologies for communicating mass culture. Um, but at the same time, there's a very common tendency for people to express their frustrations with contemporary social conditions by just despising technology. The general kind of cultural fear-mongering about, oh, the kids are all on the computers <laughs> and TV is ruining your brain and and this is why we can't really do anything anymore. There was definitely yeah, this kind of pop cultural malaise about technology that you'll find anywhere. Clearly, I think that Williams does think that there is plenty to be dissatisfied about with the contemporary use of technology. But he he thinks that, again, going back to what we mentioned earlier, that like you can't just understand movement or work or an object on itself. You have to understand the formation of it and the conditions in which it exists. You have to understand that technology can't just be this autonomous force that acts of its own will but is something that people develop and use advertising is something that develops in part through many other institutions and technologies getting co-opted and forced to advertise in order to sustain themselves given market conditions and I think this is something that's actually quite relevant today because, you know, now you're hearing all this stuff about, oh, the news is, is all lying and it's all bad and, and you can't get to the New York Times without you have to pay a subscription online. And that's in part because of the way that data is tied to monetization. 
he notes that advertising is often also just as much the result of public services or cultural services are merged into private-public partnerships, sponsorships. As we've moved into what is often just called neoliberalism, what we do is we start saying, well, these things can still stick around, but they're going to start monetizing. They're going to start sustaining themselves through these market connections, and we're going to start pushing them out of a being a purely public good where they have to work with businesses, they have to do advertising. And and this is not to say that advertising is just something that dominates all of society, but it's it's a result of other relationships and powers that transform why how these institutions operate and, and what they need to do to stay around and, and relate to the rest of society. Yeah, and it actually goes really, really good with his essay on advertising from the uh, first book we read for this podcast, um, Culture and Materialism. Uh, That leads to, in general, one of the main themes that Williams is getting to in the later half of this book is uh, the question of pessimism and how social and cultural expressions today are ones of pessimism. He's trying to say, well, but we also have to find ways of not just getting caught up in the narrative of, oh, well, that's just how it's going to be now. Just any attempt is futile because it's all just going to be the same. Um, That's not what he wants the conclusion to be. Well, he's basically seeing the breakdown of Fordism, but he's kind of trying, like, you know, he's not denying, you know, he talks about just the deindustrialized areas and the unemployment and just the police violence and all the changes that are happening. But he's kind of asking us to not despair too much, but to see maybe there's a new terrain being created that can create new possibilities and that it's up for us to define these possibilities rather than looking to this nostalgia. And this is what brings me to probably the tragedy of the book is that he was working on a, a book called The Politics of Modernism Against the New Conformists before he died and I mean, hat off to the editor who put this uh, collection together. But um, in the sketch of the table of contents for this book, he did say that he would finish it with a chapter on against the new conformists. And it is curious. I mean, it's. I wonder who the new conformists would be for uh, Raymond Williams if he would, if he had the chance to write that chapter. Uh, what is the this new conformism that is stopping people from imagining these political possibilities to shift or transition to um, an alternative or oppositional? social and cultural formation. I think that he's noticing the idea of mass politics is kind of gone. Um, The idea that people can find wide scale ways of understanding the world is no longer really being uh, accepted or acknowledged. At the same time, I think that he wants to bring back the idea that people can 
really care about transforming the world in a very foundational way. He's saying, we are not in a place where we can just go this wide scale, you know, broad theory, this will explain everything and mobilize people. He kind of turns towards saying, we need to really turn our eyes towards local relationships and conditions that then allow us to start talking about these things in a, in a more concrete and real way that is more meaningful. We need to then accept that uh, we're not talking to a mass social base all the time now, and we need to start thinking about these kind of more uh, localized conditions again to try and bring things back into uh, back into view. Um, there's a good quote here. Uh, can theory not help in its refusal of the rationalizations which sustain, which sustain the negations and in its determination to probe actual forms, actual structure of feeling, actually lived and desired relationships beyond the easy labels of radicalism, which even the dominant institutions now incorporate or impose? Through a hundred local tangles and rivalries, these questions can, I believe, be positively answered. The central problem of actual and possible class relationships through which new art and theory can be made has a new and in some ways unprecedented complexity, but in practice, there is a mode of formation based primarily on location. For example, in the English cities and in parts of Scotland and Wales, where the cultural and artistic intention is shaped from the outset by the acceptance and the possibility of broader common relationships in a shared search for emancipation. Yeah, I think kind of what he's doing there, he's saying that we have to begin from the particular and then build upon that to find this kind of universal grand narrative that can, you know, actually allow us to have a, a real oppositional transformative culture. But we can't just, you know, will it into existence with this kind of abstract universalism that's not grounded in anything. It has to be built from the bottom up through real experiences of real communities understanding their conditions of existence. The idea of interconnected common relationships and a, and a collective search for emancipation is already expressed at a local level, uh, a local understanding of, oh, there are people elsewhere uh, that we can connect with uh, and that and here we can build uh, common common bonds. And so it's like the idea of of interconnectivity is actually already present often in in local conditions and can be kind of, you know, fertilized in, in new ways through through practice. So, you know, there's almost a kind of romantic communitarian tinge to that. You know, I'm not trying to, I don't mean that in necessarily a bad way either. He sees the value in those kinds of um, interconnections, and he doesn't just see them as these archaic things that need to be, you know, modernized away. I'm certainly not a scholar in this, but I, it, it is very clear that his connection to being someone who's Welsh and Welsh communities and identities, I think is very, very clearly has a big impact on, on how he is approaching these issues and what he sees as real concrete relationships and communities who have something to say about what could possibly be a better future. Mm-hmm. Hear, hear. 
That's all for this episode. Thank you to the Raymond Williams Foundation for the opportunity to contribute to the Centenary Explainers Project and for their support. If you are interested in learning more, check out the links in the episode description. If you are interested in reading along with our show, our next book in the series will be Logics of Disintegration by Peter Dews. Subscribe on your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Buzzsprout, Spotify. You'll catch our episodes on there. Radical Thoughts is an independently produced podcast. We are unaffiliated with Verso Books. Finally, I'd like to leave on some words by Raymond Williams from the book that we just finished discussing. If you accept my definition that this is really what cultural studies has been about, of taking the best we can in intellectual work and going with it in this very open way to confront people for whom it is not a way of life, for whom it is not in any probability a job, but for whom it is a matter of their own intellectual interest, their own understanding of the pressures on them, pressures of every kind, from the most personal to the most broadly political. If we are prepared to take that kind of work and to revise the syllabus and discipline as best we can, on this site which allows that kind of interchange, then cultural studies has a very remarkable future indeed. For many people, what settles disputes is the existing law, and especially the law of property. People who own things have, by a legal title, an absolute right to them. And it can be argued that they can then do whatever they like with what they own. But suppose this property is land. It can be used for everybody's benefit or exploited for just a few. Suppose even more that this property is a right over some other human being. Then the real question might be not who has the legal right, but who would be best for the person concerned.